it's time for our regular topic, Legally Speaking, joined by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defence Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Hey, good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. I'm reading this line. It says, a strike, a noisy union, an injunction, and an unsuccessful application for a finding of civil contempt. It's a mouthful. What's what's happening here? <laughs> Indeed, it is a mouthful and a noisy one. Uh, so what's going on is that there is a, a strike going on uh, at uh, three hotels over near the Vancouver airport, the Sheraton, uh, the Marriott, and the Hilton, all of the Vancouver airport variety. Uh, and the other side of the dispute is uh, Unite Here Local 40. That's the name of the union. Um, and the strike's been going on since June. Uh, and the uh, hotels uh, have uh, had a concern about the noise caused by the jubilant strikers who are uh, dutifully picketing uh, the hotels. Uh, and as a result of that, they brought an application in court uh, back on uh, July the 7th uh, to get an injunction to reduce the noise. And they got one uh, on August the 2nd, uh, and it was by consent. Now, the wording of it is very interesting and informs what we're going to talk about. The injunction prohibits the use of various specific things at or near the hotel, like sirens, air horns, blow horns, or whistles. In addition, and separately, uh, the injunction prohibits using drums, microphones, speakers, or megaphones uh, to amplify or play recorded sound over 75 decibels at at least one, 6.1 meters from the source of the sound. Hard to know why they pick 6.1 meters, but there it is. Yeah. So things continued to be noisy, uh, and the uh, uh, hotel... Uh, and their agents uh, did various things, recorded the sounds, took videos, uh, and uh, uh, were concerned about, no doubt, the uh, noise, not a popular thing if you're a, uh, staying at an airport hotel <laughs> over in Vancouver. Uh, and so uh, the hotels brought an application in court claiming uh, that the union had breached the injunction and asking the court to find them in civil contempt, asking that there be a police enforcement clause added, uh, and uh, an order that they cease breaching the injunction. So that's what this uh, hearing was about. Now, the trouble arose for the hotels because of just exactly how that uh, order was worded. Uh, and what appears to have happened is that after the order was made, uh, the union, uh, some of the union leaders uh, went and uh, told the members to stop using some of the specified things like whistles or blow horns. And instead, there was much noise apparently being made by a combination of things such as hand clappers or drums and hand clappers or various other things in combination. Uh, and so when the hotel showed up in court and said, look, we've got these sound meter readings showing it was over 75 decibels at uh, a distance of more than 6.1 meters. It's 20 feet, the by the way. It's a metric conversion 20? for 20 feet. Yep. Ah, there it is. Okay. Yep. Uh, so, <laughs> so we get to 6.1. <laughs> yeah. So that's a good distance, 20 feet. Yeah. Um, so the uh, uh, they had videos of it and videos of the sound meter. The trouble was that it's unclear what devices were making the sounds. Huh. Uh, and so you could clearly see that at at least 6.1 or meters, 20 feet, uh, there was sound in excess of 75 decibels, but 
you can see on there, there are various things going on. There's hand clappers. That's not on the list. Hmm. Uh, and other no- boisterous noises, people talking and marching and doing various things. And that's not prohibited. <laughs> uh, and then the other, the next problem that arose is even when uh, you could see, for example, in the video, that some of these specified devices uh, were being used to produce a sound over 75 decibels at that distance, there was ambiguity in terms of, well, what exactly did this order mean? And the hotel took the position that any sound over 75 decibels at 6.1 meters where any of those listed things contributed to the noise, that mm-hmm. is, say, drums, microphones, speakers, or megaphones, that should be a breach of the injunction. The union took the position that it must be a single one of those items, a single drum, microphone, speaker, or megaphones that must go over 75 decibels in. Collectively, that's not enough. Uh, and so the trouble was that this order, which was apparently plucked from some earlier uh, court case, uh, you know, uh, complete with the uh, metric conversion, uh, was just ambiguous. Uh, and so at the end of the day, the judge concluded, look, there, there's clear evidence here uh, that uh, there's sound over 75 decibels, but it's entirely unclear what is generating it. And the wording of the order is entirely ambiguous in terms of whether it has to be one device, a contributory factor. Can it be somebody who's screaming at 74 decibels and somebody lightly tapping on a drum that puts it over the edge? Is that enough? Uh, anyways, the judge was not persuaded uh, that this was enough. The judge also, there was also an interesting argument made by the hotels mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what is meant by the word drum. Huh. And so they were they were arguing for an expansive definition of the word drum to capture things like these hand clappers. I assume from those things, those are those kind of things they hand out at the uh, hockey games where you shake them back and forth and little plastic hands clap together automatically making a loud sound. Uh, and so the the next argument the hotel trade on is well that's a drum, <laughs> uh, but the, the judge the judge reached for a copy of uh, Webster's dictionary and the Cambridge English dictionary for what the definition was of a drum and that didn't make it, uh, and so the the net result is that the uh, hotels were denied their application uh, for a finding of civil contempt denied the application for a uh, police enforcement condition uh, or anything else. Uh, and so uh, this decision was just released, so presumably you'd, you'd want to make some uh, uh, inquiries uh, as to uh, what's going on at the uh, various hotels around the airport before you make that booking for your early morning flight, uh, lest you be uh, experiencing a sound of more than 75 decibels caused by some cacophony of hand clappers and boisterous people marching around on strike. So I guess the takeaway there is, Carefully draft your injunction uh, if you're uh, hoping to get some remedy for it. And if you don't, uh, the other side is likely to get the uh, benefit of the doubt. And that's what happened here. All right. Legally speaking on CFAX 1070, we'll take our first break. We'll be back in just a moment. Legally speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Next on the docket, Michael, a strata ordered to pay costs to owners over losing a case over a replacement roof. (laughs) Indeed. What a nightmare. Uh, So the the background of this is that a strata corporation for a building decided it would be a good idea to replace the roof. That necessitated getting uh, owners to vote three quarters in favor to fund, I guess, a special assessment to pay for the roof. 
it, it didn't make the grade. They didn't get the three-quarter vote. Uh, and so rather than trying to answer the concerns of the owners who didn't want to put the new roof on, instead, the strata brought what the court concluded was ill-conceived litigation <laughs> rather than trying to address the legitimate concerns of owners. Uh, and then furthermore, the uh, court in the substantive case found that the strata had acted in bad faith, not been forthright with the owners, withheld information, and did things including sending intimidating communications to the owners, trying to get them to agree to put the new roof on. Um, so the Strata Corporation uh, in court lost uh, in their in- ill-conceived uh, litigation trying to uh, get an order that people pay to have the roof replaced. Now, uh, that's that. But the next step would be, what about costs? And we've talked about that before. And the idea in Supreme Court is if you sue somebody and you sue them successfully, you will presumptively get an order for costs to pay some of your expenses, right? And conversely, uh, if you sue somebody and lose, you're going to get ordered to pay some of their costs. Uh, now, the uh, in this particular case, what was going on is that the uh, some of the uh, owners, I think it was four of them that were in court opposing this thing, some three of them didn't have lawyers at all who were sort of representing each other, and one had uh, a lawyer who was acting pro bono for free uh, to help this person out. Um, and so a- after the Strata Corporation lost in the substantive case, they then resisted paying costs, uh, and they made various arguments about that that then had to also go and be litigated. And the arguments that they made included an argument that hey, this person had a lawyer acting pro bono, they shouldn't get costs. Or these people didn't have a lawyer at all, they shouldn't get costs. Uh, That was summarily uh, dismissed. Uh, There's a, it's well established in BC that not having counsel does not disentitle you to getting costs. And the reason for that is that costs are intended to do more than just help pay for a lawyer. Uh, They have various other functions, like they are intended to deter frivolous actions, like don't sue people without a good reason, right? Uh, or, and to do things like encourage conduct that would shorten litigation, reduce the uh, how long things are going to take, you know, make reasonable admissions, focus things, right? Yeah. Uh, and to do things like encourage settlement and all of those sort of other things that are more than just to indemnify the person, it's to like encourage the you know nonsense to go away and people to think carefully about what they're doing and make a hard-headed decision before you go and waste a bunch of time and money in court that's they have broader purposes so that did not work the next argument that the strata made was we have no money to pay these costs uh our our member our owners have refused a budget to pay for legal expenses i guess after the you know (laughs) terrible loss they took with their ill-conceived piece of litigation uh that also got no nowhere. Uh, ability to pay costs is not a determination about whether you should get costs ordered against you. And frankly, whether they have a budget for it or not, if you get a court order, uh, as was obtained here, yeah, you're going to be able to go and uh, just uh, get a uh, order to clear that money out of the Strata Corporation's bank account. It doesn't matter how they budgeted for it or whether they like it or not. So the, I don't have a budget for it, it also went absolutely nowhere. So the court ordered that the there be costs awarded in the amount of a total of $16,261, uh, and it included things like the cost of hiring an expert who cost $1,500 about the roof and various other things. 
And the way costs are figured out, they calculate these number of units uh, that are based on sort of the time and work involved, like how many days did a person spend in court and how many other steps and things did they have to do. Uh, and they use that to figure out how much cost should be, which is part of the incentive to like, you know, hurry things along and don't waste time. And if something's, you know, not really in dispute, just agree to it. Don't spend, you know, a day arguing about it because you may pay the bill for that, right? If you're wasting everyone's time uh, on something. And so the judge made the order for the costs. But then the next interesting issue arose, which was the issue of, because, of course, the people who opposed the roof and had this litigation also were owners should they have to pay a portion of their own costs? Which is a really interesting issue, right? Yeah, yeah. Because if the Strata Corporation has to pay this person, you know, one of these individuals $16,000, does that individual have to pitch in to come up with the $16,000 to pay it to himself? Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> that took a little bit of head scratching, and there are some specific statutory provisions that deal with that, uh, which the person didn't point to, I think probably because he didn't have counsel or whatever the reason might be, but there's also a previous case that talks about sort of uh, general common law principles of fairness, uh, and the uh, judge concluded that indeed not only was the successful party who was improperly sued by the strata trying to get this roof put on without a vote, um, not only was he entitled to the $16,000 in costs, but he does not need to contribute to paying his own costs, <laughs> which sort of makes sense, right? Um, otherwise, you'd feel it's a bit of a hollow victory if I say, look, I've calculated the cost due to you down to the penny, as they have, and then, by the way, you're going to have to kick in 10% of them, or whatever it might be, based on how many uh, strata units uh, there were. I think for him, the bill would have been a couple of thousand dollars. The other thing, the other takeaway from all of this um, is that one of the uh, arguments made by the strata is, hey, this is all very unfair to all these poor owners who are going to have to pay this bill. Uh, and that didn't get too far either. That got about as far as the we haven't budgeted for this. Uh, and the judge pointed out the look, all the owners have personal agency. If they chose not to exercise their vote or keep an eye on what the litigation committee or the strata council was doing and let them just run off, run off unchecked with this ill-conceived litigation, the judge said, look, they've only got themselves to blame for that. Uh, because, of course, the Strata Corporation is, is elected by the members, right? You can, there are procedures to remove people and vote in new people and so forth. And so the argument that, hey, this is all very unfair to people who were paying no attention while the Strata Corporation embarked on this legal odyssey, that went nowhere either. Um, and so I guess the takeaway there is that uh, if you do own a strata, keep an eye on what's going on with your strata, read the minutes, be somewhat involved with it, lest uh, some members of it decide to go off in some totally ill-conceived uh, direction, uh, because you may wind up with the bill for it. Uh, and various arguments about, I didn't budget for it, or we don't have enough money, or I wasn't paying attention, or this is unfair to Mrs. Smith, who didn't know any of this was going on, uh, isn't going to get far. Uh, neither is the claim that uh, the person didn't have a lawyer or the lawyer did it for free, uh, because the uh, idea behind uh, cost is more than just help pay for the lawyer. Um, it's to uh, encourage sensible behavior and uh, not to waste everyone's time and money. And so I, I suppose that's a lesson that the Strata Corporation has learned. Uh, and uh, while they may not have a roof, uh, they're going to have a, uh, a bill to pay for all these people they uh, drag through court unnecessarily. 
Our next story is a really interesting one because you and I in the past have discussed at length the difference between incarceration and a person who is confined in a mental health facility because they are ill, not because they have done anything criminal or anything wrong. And the different apparatus we have to either set a person free or confine a person. I'm reading being detained by the Mental Health Review Board, an involuntary patient here. How does that all work? Sure. So we, we have in, in British Columbia uh, legislation that uh, deals with um, involuntary committal of people uh, who are suffering from, and it's a defined term, a person with a mental disorder. And then the fundamental requirement, in addition to having a mental disorder, right, mm-hmm. is you have to have one which uh, is going to cause you to be a danger to yourself or others, right? If somebody has a mental disorder that isn't a danger to anyone, you're free to get treatment or not get treatment, that's up to you, right? Uh, but, you know, as they say, you know, your uh, freedom to spin your arm around ends with somebody else's nose, right? Uh, now, the interesting argument in this case, um, what, and it went to the Court of Appeal, was an argument about whether somebody uh, who's going before a review board to determine whether they should be kept in involuntary treatment needs to have um, the sort of uh, manifestations or symptoms of the mental disorder at the time the review is occurring. And here's how that works in a practical way, right? So we have this definition in the act of a person with a mental disorder. uh, And that definition reads this way. It says, a person with a mental disorder means a person who has a disorder of the mind that requires treatment and seriously impairs the person's ability, A, to react appropriately to the person's environment, or B, to associate with others. So it's all in the present tense. And the fact pattern here is that there was a man who was 35 years of age now, and he had a seven-year history uh, of paranoid psychosis. Um, and he engaged in various uh, behaviors when in the community, including self-harm, cutting his forearms, burning his thighs, um, and various others, um, suffered from various other uh, delusions. He believed he was under surveillance, being experimented on. There was a bounty on his head, and he thought his neighbors were trying to kill him, and he was uh, often extremely agitated and abusive. Now, what had happened over this series of years is that he would be, you know, the police would inevitably wind up getting called when this fellow was being, you know, acting out, right, or harming himself. Mm-hmm. The police would bring him to the hospital. The doctors would treat him. Uh, they would put him on antipsychotic medication. That would stop him from behaving in that way. He'd be released back into the community. He would stop taking the medication, and the cycle would begin again. And mm-hmm. on and on it went. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... The thing is that when he's on the medication, he's not behaving in that way. He's not yeah, a danger yeah. to himself or other people. Oh. And so his argument was, well, look, okay, now he's before the board. The board is charged with determining, first of all, are you a person with a mental disorder, right? And that, as I just indicated, right? A person with a mental disorder means a person who has a disorder of the mind that requires treatment and seriously impairs the person's ability to react appropriately to the person's environment or associate with others. Hmm. And at the time, the man's going to appear in front of the board. That's not so. Yeah, <laughs> be on the okay. medication. He's okay. fine, right? He's not reacting inappropriately with his environment or with others, and he's not a danger to himself or others, hmm. right? And so the argument was, well, he's just not that, right? Let him go. Um, you know, you harken back to the case we just talked about with the drum, is sort of saying, well, hold on, that, that you know, that's not odd drum, that's two drums. You, you know, shouldn't you read this in a really narrow 
way, right? We don't want to interfere with people's liberties. Uh, you know, you're holding people in custody, all of this sort of thing. Uh, and so that's the interesting legal argument that wound up in the Court of Appeal. Now, the Court of Appeal applied this principle of sort of how you're supposed to, how a judge is supposed to uh, approach the reading of statutes. And it comes from a Supreme Court of Canada case. And the, the general principle is that the are to be statutes, acts, are to be read in their entire context and in their grammatical and ordinary sense harmoniously with the scheme of the act, the object of the act, and the intentions of Parliament. That's what a judge is trying to figure out, right? It's not to be read in sort of a parsed out way. Because if you just read this, that definition I read to you now, right? Yeah. Um, you might say, well, is this a person with a mental disorder? Well, no, apparently not. He seems to be reacting to his environment just fine. He seems to be associating with everyone just fine. Uh, that doesn't meet the definition, right? Yeah. That's not a drum, it's a hand clapper, right? Yeah. Uh, but that's not the approach when you're interpreting a statute like that. You're supposed to read, a judge is supposed to read, a definition with the in the ordinary sense harmoniously with the scheme of the act, the objects of the act, and the intention. Like what's intended by this whole scheme, not to sort of pick out a particular word or sentence that might lead to a, a, a narrow or a sort of unexpected interpretation. Hmm. And so the Court of Appeal spent some time looking at exactly that. So why do we have this legislation and what's the purpose of it? Um, and uh, what's the context of it? And what are we trying to accomplish here? Well, you know, what was what was the what was meant? What was intended uh, by the provincial legislature when this legislation was uh, put in place? And it's in that way that the Court of Appeal concluded that no, the the intention of this was not to create, as had been going on for years, a cycle of a person going into treatment getting treatment, going out, going off the medication, harming themselves again, coming back and repeating endlessly. That's not what's meant by it. And so the Court of Appeal has now clarified that no, it's not an analysis of what's going on at this moment. It's a broader analysis, right? And sort of, uh, you know, is it necessary to keep this person in custody, essentially, involuntarily for treatment? And I should say, this man wasn't kept in a hospital. He was permitted to go into the community, but only as long as he kept taking his antipsychotic medication. And the way that would work is if he stopped taking it, they could bring him back into the hospital and get him back on the medication. Hmm. Um, so it wasn't as if they, they weren't keeping this particular person in the hospital. They were allowing him to be in the community, but only as long as he kept taking the medication so that he wouldn't start harming himself again. Uh, and so that's what we got from the Court of Appeal, and that's the direction going forward in terms of how uh, the review board is to interpret the act. It's a little bit broader, uh, and uh, that uh, may have some future implications in terms of thinking about things like, you know, how does somebody who's addicted to fentanyl and keeps going in and out of custody or, and having overdoses, how should that person be thought about? Hmm. Is it enough that you're not on drugs right now? All so right. that's the uh, director of the Court of Appeal. All right. That's all our time for today. Fascinating as always. Legally speaking, Michael, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Have a great day.